Hey, if you've been with us over the last few weeks or if you've, you're new here, just wanted to give you a, a recap of where we've been. We've actually been exploring the book of Nehemiah, which is a historical account of this person named Nehemiah who was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. Now, you've got to understand, Nehemiah actually comes from a background. He's a Jewish man from the nation of Israel, but Israel itself had been... Um, pillared and plumaged, and people had been in exile in the 6th century into Babylon. And so as a result, if you can imagine, Nehemiah has grown up in this generation of a people who believed that God was for them, and yet here they are living in a foreign land, displaced from their people and from their land, and wondering whether God was truly with them and for them. And what we've seen in the story of the book of Nehemiah, he gets this report about how Jerusalem, his homeland, is doing. It's in ruins. It's been burned. It's an absolute shambles. And yet Nehemiah, he has this burden on his heart to ask, to beseech the king to actually go and send a group of people there to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Now, somehow in the miracle favor of God, um, the king says yes. And so Nehemiah, as this person, again, he doesn't come from, he's not like a religiously, vocational religious um, expert. He's this cupbearer to the king with a burden on his heart. And he goes to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, as well as to rebuild kind of this city and, and begin to, to start it in a process of governing. Now, you've got to imagine he's grown up in this generation. There's been more than a century of time where they've been in exile. They've only heard the stories of what's happened in Israel. And yet, here he is. And what we've been exploring over the last few weeks is how Nehemiah, there's all sorts of opposition, right? Because as he goes back, uh, he sees that everything is in ruins. People are weeping. They're wondering, will this even happen um, other nation states around them and other governing kind of um, entities would actually be throwing shade at them. They'd be talking smack to them. They'd be threatening them. And even physical violence would begin to erupt around them. Why? Because Nehemiah is doing the work that he feels like God has called him to. And one of the things that we've been exploring is how whenever it comes to doing anything great or whenever, whenever it comes to walking into the destiny that God might have for us, it really takes this disposition of faith, of prayerfulness, and in the midst of all that's happened for Nehemiah, could you imagine opposition? There's already a generation for him of feeling like, you know, I, we are an oppressed group, we are marginalized, and yet even in the face of that opposition, he's able to kind of push through, and look at what happens at the, the beginning of chapter 7. It says, the wall had been rebuilt. High five your neighbors, say the wall had been rebuilt. <laughs> now, this is extraordinary. Maybe you're not as excited about it, but I'm telling you, like, can you imagine for the people, it's like, oh my goodness, the thing that we set out to do after having this place in ruins, it's finally been done. The wall has been rebuilt. And look at what he says. And I had set the doors in place. Could you imagine the feeling for Nehemiah? Like this whole kind of venture that took blood, sweat, and tears at the risk of his own life at times, even the, the conflicts that would happen internally amongst the people of Israel. Like here they are and finally the doors are set in place and look what it says. The gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. So in other words, here's basically what Nehemiah is doing. See, it's, if you're an entrepreneur here or if you've ever been part of a startup, you know that like, of course, it's, there's that primal energy to get something started but then, after this primal energy, any movement that starts, there needs to be some sort of institution that takes place for ongoing renewal to happen. We've been exploring this theme of renewal, about how God brings renewal through people like Nehemiah, 
a person of faith who is now believing that God has, has called him to this position to be a person of peace and kindness and love and justice. And what Nehemiah does now is he's actually now realizing it's not only about building the wall, but now it's about appointing people to take my place. So this is what he does. He appoints these people. Now, look at what it says. He says, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani. Uh, Hanani was someone earlier in the book of Nehemiah. We re- it's revealed that Hanani is the one that had revealed kind of what the predicament that Jerusalem was in prior to Nehemiah even going there. And look who else is put in charge. It says, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because, now why was this man Hananiah, Hananiah as first, Nehemiah, good job, man. Like, you've done it. You've taken your people through this incredibly difficult circumstance, and now he's thinking, who am I going to put in charge in my stead as I go back to Persia? What are the qualifications of someone who takes over? And it says it's because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. There's these two things that are pointed out by Nehemiah, both that he's a man of integrity and that he fears God more than most people do. First, I'd like to talk about this word integrity. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's this word. It's the word emet. Can I hear you say emet? Emet is this word that actually means, it sometimes is translated faithful. So someone who's faithful, who's steady, who's sturdy, but it also connotes truthfulness or reliability. Um, And the word is, is translated to integrity in this translation of the New International Version. This word emet. So when, when Nehemiah is basically describing who's the person then who's going to be in charge as a leader for what's to come. We've gotten through this kind of this primal season of building against all opposition and yet God has delivered us. Now what does it look like then for leadership to take place where the leaders that we're going to put in place will actually have these kinds of, of qualities and characteristics. And the first thing he says about Hananiah is that he's a person of integrity of truthfulness, of sturdiness. Now, this word integrity in the English, it actually comes from this Latin adjective, the word integer. Can I hear you say integer? Anyone know what an integer is? Yes. What, Jacob? Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, you raised your hand, so. Whole number, it's exactly, it's a whole number. An integer is a whole number, and isn't that interesting that the word integrity comes from integer, this whole number? So integrity is this idea of wholeness, of completeness. If you kind of, again, mix and match that with this idea of reliability, truthfulness, like there's this wholeness to integrity. Now, here's the thing, though. Whenever I think of integrity, especially in the context that I'm coming from, here I am as a vocational minister, and when I think about integrity, honestly, my mind thinks of integrity. To be someone who has integrity is someone who is perfect, (laughs) doesn't make mistakes. In other words, I think of it as like someone who's pure and sinless. I mean, that's usually what I think. But here's what happens when when that faulty thinking of what integrity is, when that comes into play, here's what happens, right? So because I think of integrity as being perfect, someone who doesn't make mistake, um, there's also something else that I am besides being a vocational minister. I'm a human being. Any other human beings here? (laughs) Just 25% of you? (laughs) Right, so human beings, I mean, what it means to be human is that we all make mistakes. We're, we're all sinners, we all, we all make mistakes. And here's what happens, though, because I'm like, okay, I gotta be a person of integrity, but I make a mistake. Let's say I sin, and let's say it's a secret sin that no one knows about. 
here's what ends up happening. I start thinking, oh, man, to be a person of integrity, I can't, I can't make mistakes. So here's what I'll do. I'll be like, oh, you know what I'll do? I won't tell anyone. And they won't know that I've made this mistake. And so here's what's so crazy about it, right? So integrity, here's what happens. I start thinking integrity is about sinlessness. And if that's the case, what that leads me to believe about myself and what leads me to the behaviors that I do is basically what I'll do is I'll start to hide. I'll start hiding parts of myself. And sooner or later, what ends up happening is now all of a sudden there's this public view of who I am. And there's what I can control and manicure on social media or LinkedIn or whatever else it might be. There's this kind of this very surface level image. And yet in the hidden parts of my life, there's this other part of my life that's seeped in shame and secrecy. And my efforts to be a person of integrity actually leads me to be more divided than I wanted to start with. See, but here's the thing, right? If integrity means wholeness or completeness, notice, integrity does not mean sinlessness. It does not equal sinless. It actually means wholeness. Therefore, what integrity is, because I'm a human being, what integrity is is someone who has a a truthfulness about them, a faithfulness about them, an integrity, a wholeness, a completeness about them, whereby they live integrated lives. But the reality is there's something about this misconception about what integrity looks like that I think of myself, that I need to be perfect, have it all together. This pressure is not only on me, but it's on all of us, isn't it? Especially in the hyper-sensationalized social media culture that we live in, to somehow project this image of who I am, and yet it's so different. Uh, I remember at the height of the pandemic, um, this cover came out in the New Yorker magazine. And I remember seeing this cover, and if you notice, there's a cover, and there's this woman on Zoom, and she's neatly dolled up. She has makeup on. She has her loop earrings on, and she's got her Zoom, her profile. I'm sure her background looks immaculate with specially placed books and paintings that look sophisticated. (laughs) But then if you notice the the ground, you see this cat who's like trapped in the cage. Um, You've got all this debris and stuff on the ground. And I remember seeing this image and being like, oh, I felt so seen. (laughs) And and here's what I realized. I realized after I I saw this image and I was like, oh my goodness, this is so me. And then I realized, I wonder if this is everyone. And sure enough, this is probably what most of us have experienced. In fact, some of us who are on Zoom meetings or working online, hey, It's an open secret, guys. This is most of us, all right? (laughs) I remember after I saw this image, um, and again, it came out uh, November 2020 is when I first saw it, and then you can see the date on there is December of 2020. When this came out, I remember I was actually supposed to lead like a seminar for pastors around the country on emotional health and how to stay emotionally whole in the midst of all that was happening in the world with COVID. So, but the thing is, like, the seminar was supposed to start at like 1 p.m. or something, and my wife Tina was supposed to come at 12.30 so that she could help watch the kids and make sure that there were no interruptions and stuff, right? So it's supposed to start at 1 p.m., but my wife Tina didn't show up at 12.30, and, you know, then I'm trying to call her, and then I'm trying to text her, Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? I know no one else ever does this, right? You text multiple times and then you, you know, and then it's it's like all uppercase. Where are you? 
where are you? Then I'm calling multiple times just so that there's receipts, <laughs> right? So all of a sudden I go from being flustered, I'm flustered to all of a sudden like I am frustrated, I'm angry. And I'm like, it's now 12.55, she's not there yet. Finally, she walks in with like four to five minutes left before I'm supposed to do this incredibly important God-honoring seminar for pastors around the country. And so she walks in and I am like, oh, honey, I'm glad you're safe. Glad you made it home. I didn't do that. Come on, everyone. (laughs) Any human beings here? I was like, where were you? Like, I've got this important seminar to teach right now. The kids, like, I don't know if they've been fed yet. (laughs) And, like, I need to lock this door so that they don't bang on it. Listen, I I can't believe you came. So, like, what were you doing? You know, she's like, hey, don't worry about it. I'll get everything set up and stuff. And she's like, I'm sorry, I'll explain to you later. And I'm like, I can't believe this. And in the midst of my arguing, it's like 1259. So I scramble. When I realize the clock, I'm like, see, now I'm late. I run up to my, I get onto the, in our bedroom. I put the, the laptop on the bed and I open up and I'm like, hey, everyone, good afternoon. It's just, hey, you know, how do you stay emotionally whole as a pastor in the midst of what's been such a difficult time for people? Hey, I'd love to share with you guys a little bit of what I've learned about how to, how to be a person at peace and in the midst of relationships and all the chaos that we're experiencing. So, hey, let's pray. <laughs> I, I, like, I get through most of the seminar. I'm, I'm like sacked with guilt, though, that finally, during the q and I'm going, like, hey, guys, just to, just to give you some evidence, like, listen, just to, right before I logged on, my wife and I, we were getting into it because I was mad that she was late. I'm really sorry. Like, isn't this real life, though, you know? <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's so easy to somehow give this image, to have this bifurcation of our public image and our private image. And it's not just for people like me and this religious vocation. It's for all of us. Whether you're a Christian or you're not, whether you're religious or you're irreligious, this idea of somehow hiding, of of being someone who's consistent and whole And when Nehemiah appoints Hananiah, he's saying this person is a person of integrity, of of truthfulness, of of wholeness. Not sinlessness, but of togetherness, of a person of integrity. You know, uh, I've shared a lot about my own family background with my father and some of the fear that I grew up with, uh, with him. And he was very violent with my mom and with us growing up. And my father became a minister, which I think I've shared about as well. And my father, he became a minister, and then he became this prolific author. Uh, So after he switched into vocational ministry at the age of 40, um, here he was. Now, you got to understand, though, like my brothers and I, we all, like, when he became a pastor of a church, like, it it was way, it was so confusing to us. Because you can imagine, we had this experience with him, and his behavior didn't really change much, but all of a sudden, he's a pastor now. But then he wrote a book, and now that book became a bestseller. And then from that book, it became the platform by which he would now speak uh, to different audiences. And since that time, he's written 37 books on this platform. And I've seen him now preach on some of the most massive stages uh, around the world, particularly in Korean-speaking places. So he spoke 
I'm speaking to thousands at one of the largest churches in the world. I've seen my father speak. And um, the, the platform by which he wrote that first book, which has now become the theme of his writing for the next 37 books, is on how to raise a family. So you got to understand then, like, like for me, it's like, like my brothers and I, I remember when his book became like this bestseller and that he'd invite us. He'd be like, hey, you guys are coming with me to this speaking engagement I'm going to. And we're like, okay. We'd go to this place, and especially Korean culture tends to be very honorific, and so especially to elders and religious leaders. And so my dad was like, people were like, oh, my goodness, Pastor Yeon, you were like the most amazing kind of writer. Thank you for teaching us so much about how to raise a family. And my brothers and I are like, What's going on right now? Like, this is, uh, I, I remember just us being so confused and hurt and puzzled. And in many ways, my own wrestling with whether or not I wanted to follow Jesus was really around this issue of like, gosh, what I've experienced at home and the, the bifurcation of one's public life and private life, what I've experienced with home, do I really believe in a Jesus who would allow for something like that? And it only came to a place where finally when I could cut through the dross of all of that inconsistency and hypocrisy, when I found that Jesus himself was the one that was decrying most of all the religious leaders who lived this life of hypocrisy. And I realized that, gosh, as much as we might fail as human beings in living lives of integrity, yet Jesus is someone who invites us to a life of wholeness, of completeness, of freedom. You know, one of the images that we often use is this image. It's an image of an iceberg. And in Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, we talk about how most of us, when it comes down to how we exhibit and portray ourselves in life, it's just 10% above the surface. But 90% of of an iceberg is actually below the surface. And what we do is, especially in religious contexts, we invite people, hey, just change that 10%, you know. Have, you know, all, all the exterior behavior modification kinds of things change so that you look the part of being someone who's close to God. And yet there's this 90%. Some of the hidden fears, the defensiveness, the sin, the shame, the motivators that lie beneath, that oftentimes we don't let God or other people into those areas. And yet one of the things that became so apparent for my own life is I was kind of exposed to this idea of what does it look like to allow God, not only into that surface 10%, but into the deeps, the depths of who I am all the ways in which my defensiveness, my lusts, my failures, my shame, what would it look like to allow God into those areas? Now, here's what it requires, though. It requires a certain kind of honest ruthlessness. To be honest enough, not sinless, but to be honest enough to to say, God, I want you in the 90%. I want you in all of these parts of who I am. And I want to offer all of this to you. When Nehemiah puts Hananiah in place, he's basically saying, Hananiah is a person of integrity. Not perfection, not sinlessness, of truthfulness, of integrity, of wholeness. And that's the invitation for all of us. Now, here's the thing, right? Because we're talking about this idea of character, character being so important when it comes to these things. But look at this passage. Look at what it says. Uh, It says, Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, In other words, this was his vocation. His vocation was already, he was already a competent commander. So some of you are like, oh yeah, those Christians, all they believe in is character, 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 but they are awful at their jobs. Well, no. 
Here what we see is that here's a commander who's very competent in what he does. And notice, because he was a man of, there's a word, integrity, emet, and feared God more than most people do. Now, here's what Nehemiah reveals to us, right? That leadership is not only just about character, but it's also about competence. It's both. This is what we believe, that it's not just, oh, I think in many places it's just all about competence. If you could help us reach the bottom line, you know, then you've got a job here and you'll be elevated. But for Christians, we also believe that character matters significantly. That the way that I do my job, that the way that I live my life with my family and elsewhere, that it's met with a certain kind of wholeness. See, leadership is about both of these things, both competence and character. Now, what is character then? The way that Nehemiah is describing Hananiah is this way. Character is actually living a life of integrity, that word that's used of being a person of integrity, but it's also with humility. Notice, what it says about Hananiah is this. It says that Hananiah was someone who was a person of integrity, and he feared God more than others. Isn't that interesting? That the description that's used of Hananiah is he's someone that fears God. Now, here's what that means, right? Does it mean that he's just this kind of limping, wimpy kind of figure who's a doormat? No, he's not. He's a commander of the citadel. He's someone with extraordinary competence and probably boldness. But he's a person of integrity, but he's a person when it comes to fearing God, it means that the disposition of his life is one of humility. It's one of God is God and I am not. That's why it says he fears God more than other people. When Nehemiah is looking for who is going to lead in this kind of topsy-turvy terrain, it's someone with competence and character. And this character is marked by integrity, by this wholeness, but also with the humility. You see, in other words, for, for Hananiah, he has a moral compass, And the moral compass is not generated from himself, from within. It's generated from this fear of God. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how the themes of justice and injustice in the world today, we talked about what are the legitimate moral sources for justice and injustice, for right and for wrong. We talked about how God, by nature of being God, a transcendent figure who transcends time and space and geography, that God is the one that can be the one who has a moral authority Um, that's timeless because he's God. And here for the Christian, for Hananiah, for Hananiah is able to to have a moral compass because he fears God. Now this takes extraordinary humility because now for Hananiah, he's not only a person of integrity, he's not only a person of competence, but he's someone that has this humble disposition that's willing to say, God, I want to follow your ways more than my ways. More than my own self-advancement, I want to follow you. Now, do you see how that disposition is so unlike New York? (laughs) So unlike our city, so unlike our world, which is so much about self-advancement, self-fulfillment, do what pleases you, do what makes you happy. And yet for Hananiah, there's this integrity, there's a wholeness, a truthfulness about him, but there's also this humility by which he's able to say, like, I fear God. God is my moral compass, and as a result, what matters more to me is doing what God wants more than what other people want, more than what the bottom line is. God is my primary motivator. Now, when we talk about the world today and we talk about primary motivators, um, it's very well known that over uh, time and space and geography, in, in many ways, the three drivers of 
of our lives that, that most people find purpose in are usually these three, money, sex, and power. I mean, isn't it true? And in fact, uh, money, sex, and power, again, in different countries around the world, and when we talk about different people who are hungry for advancement, it's usually driven around these things, money, sex, and power. Now, I realize saying that in a religious context, some of us are like, oh my goodness, money, sex, and power, those are things we need to stay away from. But you know what's so interesting is that money, sex, and power, they're actually neutral things. In fact, in the scriptures, money, it's talked about constantly. But it's not how money is evil, it's the greed of money that's evil. In fact, what you see is that money can actually be used in incredibly redemptive ways. Been used to actually serve others when you're generous with it. When you help an economy in the flourishing of the creative class. There's all these different ways in which money can be redemptive. In the same way, sex. You know, again, sex can be this taboo topic in churches. Oh my goodness, I knew he was going to say this thing, decrying sex and sexual behavior and all this stuff. But sex is actually this beautiful thing that God has created in its proper place. And, and it's absolutely fulfilling and can have these effects to multiply in the world. Now, there's ways in which we can distort sex in the ways that we use our bodies, in the way that we follow some of our, our lusts. And, but in and of itself, sex is this beautiful neutral thing. And the same is true for power. Now, I realize that power, again, people are like, oh, power, it's this awful thing. Well, the reality is power actually exists in the world, and it's those people who can leverage their power, not to oppress or to exploit, but actually to free to empower, and to serve. Now, do you see how different this is, right? It's different to approach money, sex, and power. In and of themselves, it's not like these are bad things. Don't ever pursue money, sex, and power. No, what if it was, what if we were to pursue them in a way that would honor God? But again, in the world that we live in today, it's unabashed in our world that money, sex, and power are the things that people thirst after, especially in a city like this. Uh, Check out this article from Forbes magazine in 2013. You can just look at the title. You don't really have to read it. Uh, It's called Money, Sex, and Power, How to Get Plenty of One. Uh, I mean, listen, there's no mistake about it. Like, let's get after at least one of these things because these are the principal drivers of our lives. And I realize some of you are like, oh, I need to Google that one. You know, like, I need to read that article for myself. Money, Sex, and Power. But what does it look like for us who follow Jesus and want to say, I want to live a life of integrity and humility where I fear God more than I fear the ways of the world, to come before him in humility and to say, I I don't live for myself. I don't live for the accumulation of more money, sex, and power for me. But what does it look like for me to submit before the living God and to say, God, every ambition in me, would it, be, would it be aligned with your heart? The reason why Nehemiah appoints Hananiah is because he's a person of integrity, of wholeness. But he's also a person who fears God, that God is the one who defines him more than money, sex, or power. And in the accumulation of these things, it's... Hananiah is someone, hopefully, that fears God more than any of these things, and that's the invitation for every single one of us. Say, we're not defined by these things the way that the world around me is. Now, here's what I realize. Some of you are like, listen, Drew, I recognize 
that money, sex, and power. It's in the world and the industry, whether it's finance or law or whatever else that I exist in. But the reality is it's also in the church. And some of you, perhaps, you've come from church backgrounds where what's, what's really been off-putting to you is in the name of God, how some people can actually use God or religion or church circumstances for these very things, for money, sex, or power. And maybe it's what led to a lot of disillusionment for yourself and a lot of pain. Uh, my brother, my older brother called me this week. He's been hearing about scandal after scandal in churches. And he called me. He's like, hey, man, I just heard about this scandal that's happening in this church. And he's like, what's going on with you, man? <laughs> you doing the right thing, man? What's going on? You know? And I'm like, I'm like yeah, man, listen, I really appreciate your call, man. And yeah, you know. But I, I just, I, I realized before God, like, It's not like there's some special pastor cloak that precludes me or anyone else from my sinful human tendencies. You know, what's crazy is the moment that we're most susceptible to losing our integrity or losing our fear of God is when we think we're indestructible around it. When we begin to think, when I start to think, you know what, I'm smart, I've gotten all this training. Hey, I've taught pastors on how to remain emotionally whole in the midst of, midst of COVID. It's interesting how that happens, right? How like, I'm smart, I've got degrees, yeah, these other people, they might fall in these different ways. But when it comes to me and my personal integrity in my life, like, I'm not as messed up as those people. And yet, what if today, what if the invitation for all of us is to say, just take an inventory of our own lives and say, God, where, where am I missing the mark? When it comes to money, when it comes to sex, when it comes to power and the ways that I've leveraged power. You know what's interesting about the Christian story? Because here's what's so fascinating, right? Because the Christian story, like I said, these things are actually neutral. Money, sex, and power are neutral things, but we're invited as Christians because of who God is to use money, sex, and power in a redemptive way. Now, why is that? How do we even use it in a redemptive way? Because we just talked about how religion, oftentimes, even people who claim to follow religion can somehow, through their own vices, end up being a people who fall into the trap of money, sex, and power. Well, what is so different about the Christian message? I mean, here's, here's what the Apostle Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is what it says about who God has revealed himself to be. God put the wrong on him, on Jesus. This is what we believe, that Jesus comes into the world. The wrong is put on him. He takes on our sin and shame. He takes on the brokenness and pain. Who never did anything wrong. This is who Jesus is. This is what we believe about him. And he does this out of love for us. 
He bears it himself. But not only that, look at what Jesus does. So we could be put right with God. So that we could actually, instead of suffering the repercussions of our own sin and shame, we can actually be people who are free to be in a relationship with God, free from the trappings, free from all the the ways in which the world tells us that you need to live for money, sex, and power. Instead, we can actually be a people who are free to live for a God who loves us, not based on what we've attained or our degrees or our aptitude, but purely by his grace. And it's this God, this Jesus, who invites us to have a relationship with him. And it's this Jesus who invites us to a life of integrity where we don't have anything to hide. We no longer need to hide our sin and shame. Why? Because of Jesus, we find our identity, our security, our freedom. We no longer have to be a people who live with uh, going after in this unhealthy ambition the ways of the world. Instead, we can live with a freedom, a lightness of love and of joy and hopefully healthy ambition. Uh, One of the phrases that uh, I was talking to someone this morning about is Steph Curry, who's one of my favorite basketball players. One of the things that he was asked as it relates to his career and moving forward, he said, uh, I have nothing to prove, but I have much to accomplish. Pretty cool. The Knicks could have drafted him, by the way, in 2006. Anyhow, but, um, (laughs) but I love that perspective. And... I know Steph Curry has talked about his faith at different times, and I'd like to believe that's where this mentality comes from. I've got nothing to prove, but I've got much to accomplish. There's this fine line of this freedom and security that's found in being able to follow this God. And and when my life is aligned in the fear of this God and the love and the security of this God, Here's what it means, and it means that I don't have to live with this pride that comes from my self-arrogating kind of resume or whatever else it might be, but instead I could, I could live with an integrity and a humility before him. And so here's what I would love to do. I'd love for us, you know, when it comes to money, sex, and power, uh, if you could all stand with me at this time. Uh, I, I would just like for each one of us just to take a bit of an inventory right now for our own lives. You know, are there, are there any ways in which money, the way that we approach money, the way that we're anxious about money, the way that we hold on to money, the ways that we strive after money right now, are, are there any ways that's just not aligned to the heart of God? And we realize that we've been more driven by our own sense or want or desire for control or notoriety than just being found in God. Could you just, if you can, just can you close your eyes and just open up your hands and just, just in a posture of surrender right where you are, could we just all this posture of surrender and prayer before him? Lord, if there's any way in which money has become my aim, 
the security it gives, the comfort it gives. The ways in which my mental and emotional energy goes into making sure that I have enough money or that God, we just confess, I confess, I want you more. I want to find the security that's found in you, the generosity of spirit that's found in you. I want you more. Lord, I pray for any one of us when it comes to sex and our bodies and the ways in which they're signs of the deep longings that we have for togetherness and oneness. And sometimes that has led us to places that we don't want to go. Ways in which we're caught in this place of guilt and shame and brokenness and yet, and yet longing and hope and God, right now, I pray that you would align our heart to yours. Father, when it comes to power, if there's any way that we find ourselves striving so much for it, or maybe ways that we have dismissed the dignity of others, because of our position. The ways in which perhaps we have not been healing presence in our workplaces or schools or our families or in our neighborhood, but ways in which perhaps we have not modeled to others what it means to use our power in redemptive ways. God, would you free us and forgive us? we confess our sins you are faithful and just because you have paid the cost you have welcomed us home it's never too late to say Jesus we want to live for you there's so many voices so many ads and media things that we consume that tell us about what the best way to live in our city is and the best way to live in the world is and we get so caught up in these messages and these voices and Lord I pray that today that you would be enough that you would be more than enough us to follow you, God. Help us to run into your arms, because that's who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.